Hello, fellow foodies. You may have heard of the saying, breast is best, when discussing the topic of infant nutrition. But you may be wondering, is that really true? What is the difference between infant formula and breast milk? And what are the actual nutritional needs of babies that enables them to grow and develop in that critical early period of life? Well, I have the perfect guest to dive into these questions and others on today's show. Now, let me introduce you to him. Dr. Bruce German is the director of Foods for Health Institute at the University of California, Davis. The goal of his research is to build the knowledge necessary to improve human health through the diet. And the model they use is that of lactation, which is the process of millennia of constant Darwinian selective pressure to produce a food to nourish, sustain, and promote healthy infants to be healthier. Bruce and his colleagues have published more than 450 papers that have been cited over 44,000 times in the scientific literature. They've patented various technologies and applications of bioactive agents and have co-founded the startups Evolve Biosystems, BCD Bioscience, Digestiva Inc., and Matribules Inc. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Um, thanks for coming, Bruce. Thanks, Cassie. Delighted to be here. Great. So maybe why don't we start with this general question of why milk? Why this as a topic of your scientific research? Sure. That That's basically the, the question we asked ourselves many years ago, is we were unsatisfied with the way health research was proceeding. It was basically focusing on disease, what's going wrong, can you discover small molecules, therapeutics that will intervene in disease? Um, good that we continue to do that, but the perspective of health, how do you nourish someone to prevent disease, protect them from problems, wasn't being pursued. So that was our goal. And, and this remarkable idea that came actually very late in lactation, uh, or in evolution, lactation, the mother-infant pair, mother's... Mm. Mammalian mothers literally dissolve themselves to make a complete diet for their infant. Uh, everything costs them. So if it isn't of any value to the infant, Darwinian selection will drive it out of evolution. Mm -hmm. But if anything in the milk helps that infant, uh, in essence, to, to succeed in its environment as diet, it's hard to imagine anything under more positive selective pressure. So mm -hmm. our goal was to take literally milk apart in every sense. What is everything in it and what are they there for? It's been selected, so what are the mechanisms by which it acts to make babies healthier? Yeah, so, well, here's a basic question that actually I'm guessing the answer isn't so simple, but what actually is in human milk? Like what makes up milk? Well, yeah, milk is complicated. So in this Darwinian selection pressure sense, milk has to have everything a baby needs. Mm. All the vitamins, all the minerals, all of the fuels, amino acids, fatty acids, substrates for that baby to grow. All of them have to be there. It's mm -hmm. the complete diet of the infant. It literally doesn't eat anything else. Mm -hmm. And so that was what we knew was there. Some of the things right away we recognized is, is all the nutrients are there in just the right amount. Because of course, oh. essential nutrients in milk are essential for the mother. 
But as a result of, of that efficiency, they're there in interesting complexes. So mm -hmm. milk assists in uh, the digestion, absorption, uh, and successive, successful delivery of all the nutrients. But it's when, what goes beyond the essential vitamins and minerals that really is the exciting part of milk. And you begin to realize how, in essence, diabolically clever evolution was in coming up with this material and, and how much we could learn about how to nourish mothers and babies and the rest of us. That's great. Well, when we think about mammals as a general group, you know, the, the composition of milk between different mammals is, is somewhat different, correct? So cow's milk is going to have a different composition than goat milk, and that's different from human milk. And how does evolution play into that? Well, in fact, lactation strategies are, are truly impressive uh, in that mothers are nourishing their infant for the environment in which the infant finds itself. So mm -hmm. some, some fascinating examples. Um, so uh, the hooded seal, this is a seal born in the North Atlantic, right in the middle of polar bear country. Ooh. This is a hostile <laughs> environment. Yeah. So how does lactation solve that problem? So it turns out it's very short. Lactation for the hooded seal only lasts four days. Wow. But in those four days, the mother seal transfers through milk to her infant each day, 15 pounds of fat. Wow. <laughs> At the end of those four days, that seal pup is 50 pounds fatter. Wow. What that means is after four days, that seal now has fuel to get off the ice and go out and swim for weeks mm. on those fuel reserves. It's the most impressive transfer of fuel in, in, in mammals. But example after example, we see how lactation has in essence been sculpted by this selective pressure to make uh, infants successful in their environment. Overall, mammalian milk is remarkably consistent across mammals. So mm. all the vitamins and minerals that each infant needs uh, are there. And another fascinating thing. That's great. Well, one question I've had, um, I don't know if I've told you this, but I'm a mom of three. So I've, I've got three kids. So I've gone through this whole, the birth through breastfeeding process with each of them, including transition eventually to um, formula. And one of the, one of the things I always wondered during my pregnancy was, um, and also during lactation is how does my diet influence the composition of the milk? Can they taste the foods that I'm eating through the milk that I produced? Oh, that's a great question. And again, uh, the genius of, of, of lactation. So, so taste actually is an innate preference. So we have five basic taste senses, sweet, salty, and umami. We are born liking and we die liking. Sour and bitter, we dislike. Mm. But so, so our environment doesn't influence that. We, we basically are born with that. But the flavors, the smells that we find delicious or unpleasant, we learn those in our lifetime. So it's the flavors of your diet that were incorporated into milk mm -hmm. and then, in essence, guided, educated your babies 
to the foods you were eating and built preferences in those babies from milk. Wow. So they were building, in essence, liking preference for the diet you were consuming. And when you think of that in evolutionary terms, it's ingenious. So you're already teaching your infants what to scavenge as food in their environment mm -hmm. through milk. It's just, it is amazing. That's what, fascinating. What it's fascinating. And, you know, I, I, I think about this when I, I, I travel a lot for my work on medicinal plants. And I've observed in many different um, regions of the world that um, this idea of, of the Western idea of, of preparing kind of a different meal for children is very much a Western thing. The idea that the parents are going to have a nice dinner of fish with vegetables, but then they get out the frozen chicken nuggets for the toddler is, is very much an American thing, I think. Um, whereas in other countries, I see that usually, you know, older infants and young toddlers are often eating Maybe the, the fish is being pureed or flaked up or the sweet potatoes are being mashed and they're consuming it that way. So I'm, I'm just wondering, so this, this preference even begins before you get to that stage is basically what you're saying, that the preference can be influenced, but at the stage of lactation as well. Wow. Absolutely. Um, actually, there's another thing about lactation. Um, so the hooded seal is the shortest lactation. Uh, primates have very long lactations, and, uh, and typically humans uh, would lactate uh, and, and feed their infants some milk for mm -hmm. uh, as much as five or more years. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So through the process in which babies were starting to consume complementary foods mm -hmm. uh, and gradually develop a, a mixed diet, they were still getting some breast milk. And we think that was probably very important in, in guiding the, the process and especially your preference for particular foods. Yeah. So I guess the next logical question is, and I don't know if this is known yet in the research, but are there, are there ill effects of, of um, women eating a lot of junk food during lactation? Does that have does that have a you know generational effect then on the child that's building? Would they be building a preference for, you know, maybe not the most nutritious foods or flavors? Yeah, unfortunately, um, the there are two consequences of a bad diet for mm -hmm. uh, for lactating mothers. One is um, they are literally dissolving themselves to make to to make milk. Uh, so the more you can in essence, nourish yourself well, the more important. Mm -hmm. This is a time when it's really important to get a, a, a complete comprehensive diet. Mm. But you are, in essence, teaching your infant the foods that it will like for the rest of its life. Wow. And, and so you, you, you want to, for those, uh, in essence, months, uh, make sure you, you think about what it is you're educating your infant to prefer. Uh, it, it's an additional responsibility, uh, but it is a natural consequence of the emergence of lactation. Yeah. When you think about it, it's genius. It is. It, <laughs> it, is, it, a, is. it is. There's so many advantages, but I guess also some disadvantages when you think about if you have a poor diet. Well, Bruce, what are some of the biggest things that you've learned over your period of research on milk and how, how does that tie into lessons around diet in general? Oh, great question, Jesse. So, so one of the things, remember our model is the mother-infant pair, the mother, mother's dissolving herself 
to make a complete diet. Everything is costing her. So, so we anticipated that there'd be nothing that, that wouldn't be good for the infant. So imagine our surprise. We're taking milk apart for its components uh, and find that human milk is basically chock-a-block full of fiber. Hmm. Actually, little bits of fiber, uh, complex sugar polymers that the baby cannot digest. So, so, so why would mothers dissolve themselves to make poop in their baby? So, so we began to explore that. So first of all, what are they? These are complex sugar polymers, sugars held together by very specific glycosidic bonds, sugar mm -hmm. bonds. And babies now have no enzymes to break them down. So they go through the baby. So we had an idea. Well, maybe they feed bacteria. So we tested. Can these oligosaccharides, these complex sugar polymers, fiber, feed bacteria? No. We tried bacterium after bacterium, and they huh. didn't. And then we found one. What a surprise from the intestine of a breastfed baby. Bifidobacteria longum, subspecies infantis. Bifidobacteria infantis. And we examined its genome. And lo and behold, this specific strain of bifidobacteria has genes encoding enzymes to break down all those glycosidic sugar linkages. Wow. So it literally grows spectacularly well. So birth, mother transfers her bacteria, and then milk feeds that single specific strain. It multiplies in the baby, fills the baby's lower intestine with these bacteria. They're protective. They mm -hmm. knock out bad bacteria. They, in essence, coat the baby in protecting it. it. The bacteria educates the immune system. It fuels the intestine. It's an amazing idea. That and is so amazing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so Controlling the microbiological community in a baby means you get the right strain of bacteria, and then you feed selectively that strain of bacteria. Mm -hmm. Mothers are literally recruiting another life form to babysit their baby. <laughs> so, but what, what, what else did we learn? So there is as much complex oligosaccharide in human breast milk as there is protein. So from an evolutionary perspective, it's as important to feed the bacteria in the baby it's the baby. That's the baby itself. Wow. Wow. So, so, so now we're, um, we're, we're realizing the importance of that. We made one other key discovery. It's basically gone. So this bacteria that has been with humans uh, through our history, um, mm -hmm. because of antibiotics and cesarean sections and infant formula, uh, we have inadvertently lost it. So most babies today don't have it. And, uh, and, wow. and we think that is, uh, is underlying some of the problems that we see in, uh, in, in the development of babies today, the development of, of dysregulated immunity and allergy and eczema, asthma. Mm -hmm. uh, we think some of the metabolic regulation that you'd normally, in essence, as a baby, gain by being fueled through this unique mechanism all the time. That's a, a problem. We even think that there are neurological issues associated mm. with the fueling of the growing, in essence, nervous system. Again, all have been disrupted because this remarkable idea of evolution, feeding a specific uh, bacteria, has been gone. The good news is it's very easy to put it back. 
Oh, good. <laughs> what you have to do is uh, reintroduce the bacteria. It grows, multiplies, and mm -hmm. babies are good to go again. Wow. But you have to maintain what? it and feed it that special, those, those special sugars, though, correct? In order to keep uh, it in. Yeah. Yeah. Breastfeeding is absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. um, this, these complex sugar polymers that are in, in breast milk are, uh, are unique to breast milk. And uh, mm -hmm. it's one of the signature benefits of breastfeeding. Wow. Um, it also teaches us, of course, that the bacteria within us is probably real important our entire lives. If we look at what the bifida bacteria does for babies, all of a sudden we begin to say, gee, that'd be nice to have throughout your life. So now we have to say, well, what kind of bacteria does bifida bacteria infantis look like? Mm. And what could we imagine in our diet that would feed them? So could we imagine moving from bifida bacteria infantis and breast milk to a population of bacteria that are protecting us and we feed them through our diet? Yeah. A whole new way to think about the foods we eat, feeding Absolutely. us, feeding our bacteria. Yeah. Well, and this is this this focus on microbiome sciences is relatively recent, right, Bruce? I mean, our understanding of the importance of the microbiome in our gut. Um, when would you say that really started to come out in the scientific literature? I don't remember learning about this in college, even in the '90s. Is it been more recent than that? Well, um, it was recognized actually by the French clinician Tissier. Hmm. who was, was literally the first microbiologist. He got the magnifying lenses from Van Leeuwenhoek. Oh, and, okay. Uh, stacked mm -hmm. them, of course, and so he could start looking at, at small things. Uh, and he started to describe bacteria. And he was the one who gave them uh, their nomenclature as uh, shapes and colors mm -hmm. and sizes. And, and of course, like all microbiologists, he starts looking at everything he looked at his thumb, <laughs> but eventually he got around to poop, and uh, and and that's when he realized, oh my gosh, um, it's just full. We're teeming with mm -hmm. bacteria inside, uh, and he described that. But then, actually, late in the 19th century, he looked at at the diaper of a breastfed baby, and he wrote about it a hundred years ago. Wow, years ago, he said, it's amazing. He'd never seen anything like it. It was all a, in essence, lawn of the same kind mm. of bacteria. And it had a funny shape, bifid, meaning Y-shaped. That's bifida bacteria. Wow. So over 100 years ago, Tissier saw it, but he didn't know how to interpret it. Mm -hmm. And so it took 100 years before scientists began to assemble the capabilities of looking at this chaotic assembly of bacteria and, uh, and start to make sense of it. Unfortunately, during that same period, babies have been losing the bacteria. Mm. And remember, once you've lost it, it, it won't come back spontaneously. So mothers have lost it, so they can't pass it on to their babies and then to their babies. And so, oops. Yeah. And so do you think this is tied to our shifts since the, you know, mid 1900s to the use of more antimicrobial agents, not only for medicine, but also in, in, in industrial agriculture, or is this still really something that people are trying to understand? Um, yes, Cassie, you're exactly right. We didn't realize that for all intents and purposes, as higher animals, we sit on top of a microbial web 
this is our environment. And, uh, and, and we have been emphasizing the pathogens, the deleterious infectious bacteria yes. that can cause disease. And there are a few that, that do, but there are also bacteria that are not pathogenic and some of them are actually beneficial. Uh, first and foremost, for protecting us from the pathogens. And in our zeal to eliminate pathogens, we have inadvertently yeah. eliminated many of, 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 of the beneficial bacteria. Um, but scientists now have the tools to, uh, to, in essence, start studying them, pursuing them, looking at all the things they do uh, for us. Um, over the next 10, 20 years, this will probably be one of the hottest areas of science, especially in, the, in health sciences. And mm -hmm. in 20 years, we will all be eating just like we were as babies for us and our bacteria. Yeah, that's a great, a great, I love that concept. Um, well, thinking about food and the impact it has on your gut. Um, one thing you can ask any mother that switched from breastfeeding to formula is that the smell of the diaper changes drastically. And what I'm guessing here is that smell is probably linked to a shifting microbiome um, within the infant. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Um, well, there, there are a couple of things that happen. Um, so, so we've been studying milk across uh, its composition and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and studying babies as well. And one of the groups of babies that we're particularly worried about is, uh, is premature babies. Mm. Premature babies are typically born by cesarean section. That's a sterile birth. So no bacteria are transferred at all. Then mm. neonatologists, in essence, take them to, uh, to an incubator and try and nourish them there. And, uh, and we were worried that they, they wouldn't get the right bacteria. And it's true. Mm. So... Now we can give them the right bacteria, and so their microbiome is in good shape for, from that perspective. But we were also interested, can premature babies even digest milk? They're premature, mm. and the complex proteins of, of milk, can they digest them? So we tested uh, with the help of, uh, of Mark Underwood, head of neonatology at the, the medical center, we took milk back out of babies to see, is it being digested? Turns out it was by being digested very well. Huh. But I was, I was perplexed. I said, how can they? They're premature. <laughs> so we looked very carefully. What are the proteins being broken down into peptides? Mm -hmm. If we map those peptides back to the proteins, we can tell where they're being cleaved. Mm -hmm. And since enzymes that do that, that proteolytic, that protein breakdown, are site-specific, we could tell what enzymes were breaking down the proteins. And we identified five enzymes that were basically breaking down human breast milk. Babies don't have those enzymes in their stomach. <laughs> wow. So where are the enzymes coming from? Yeah. Turns out they're in the milk. So mothers oh. produce the enzymes that wow. activate in the baby and the stomach and help break down the, the proteins. Wow. <laughs> so it turns out that that's that's helping the baby to uh, digest, producing specific uh, peptides, but also helping it to absorb those amino acids and peptides. If babies can't break down the protein, not only do they not get the amino acids they need, but the protein continues to travel to the lower intestine 
And now it's food for inappropriate mm. bacteria, proteobacteria that mm -hmm. produce endotoxin, prostate, and as they break down, uh, they produce small molecules that you smell and recognize, oh, that's not, that's yeah. not good at all. <laughs> and, and so it's a combination of, uh, of the wrong bacteria and the wrong food for those bacteria. Wow. And, uh, and so that's why uh, breastfeeding uh, is, is, is so protective of babies. Yeah. And the nurses of mothers and fathers. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, I'd love to talk a bit more about protection and immunity. I think many people have heard of colostrum and colostrum provides some early protection. Um, but getting back to this idea also of, of how the how the bacteria in your gut can train your immune system, I think that's really an interesting concept that many may not be familiar with. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. And, and again, a great question. So, so what we have recognized, in fact, the scientific community is Babies are born naive, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're literally sterile. They're, they're <laughs> dropped at birth in the mud. And boy, they're, they're, they're at high risk. So one of the things that mammalian milk does is effectively transfer a lot of the mother's immunity through milk to the baby. Mm -hmm. Genius. So, so, so what mothers have been exposed to recently as pathogens, they've developed antibodies mm -hmm. and, and, and immune factors too. She transfers those to her baby through milk. Wonderful idea. Wow. It goes further than that. Now you have to educate the baby's immune system because it has to learn its environment. The immune system is, is astonishing in us. It has to, in our lifetimes, decide this novel molecule is either perfectly benign, it's food, I shouldn't do anything, I should tolerate it, or... It's a component of a pathogen. It's putting me at risk to, to kill me. I have to develop an active immune system to recognize and attack it. And that decision process is very complex. One of the things that immunologists have recognized is how can a, uh, an immune system recognize what's a problem? Mm -hmm. Danger. If there's danger perceived by the immune system, then what is perceived at the same time as those signals of danger is recognized associated with that danger and should be attacked. So what does it signal as danger? What tells the immune system danger? Well, one of them is endotoxin, mm -hmm. natural products of enterobacteria. And these are throughout uh, evolutionary history, typically in essence inappropriate and, and in many cases pathogenic bacteria. So they produce endotoxin and our immune system wakes up and goes, problem. And what it's in essence senses associated with that danger, endotoxin, it builds an immune response to. So what the appropriate bacteria in babies do is they, bifidobacteria infantis, it drives other endotoxin producing bacteria out Mm -hmm. and lowers, in essence, the danger signals to, to the infant and fuels the uh, immune system at the same time. So it realizes no danger. And what I'm seeing now is perfectly okay. It's food. So you can see how the presence of the bacteria and the things that the bacteria does 
and the fuel metabolites that it produces helps the baby's entire education of its immune system. Wow. It seems to last even a lifetime. You have an educated immune system for your whole life if you get it right early. Early on. So I guess what what are the what are the consequences then of of not of not you know, feeding a, an infant breast milk then? If you're using a, an artificial formula, what are the risks there? Or do we really know still? I mean, are, are there problems with development of, a, of an appropriate immune response? Again, wonderful questions. In, in our part of the world, we are in essence the, living in a very affluent and, uh, and, mm -hmm. and relatively in essence, pathogen-free environment. Mm -hmm. So babies are the beneficiaries of that. So they're not under the kinds of risks, threats that, uh, that they have been historically and are still in some parts of the world. So, so breast milk and its ability to protect babies from pathogens isn't perceived as being as valuable anymore because babies aren't under the same kinds of threats. I see. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it, uh, prevention has this interesting dimension. Um, do you know the value of an umbrella if it doesn't rain? <laughs> That's a great so, analogy. To, to a certain yeah. extent, yeah. Um, breast milk is, uh, is, is like that, uh, that umbrella, but it's there when you need it. But what That's we're beginning to realize is many aspects of development early in life persist. It's called programming, imprinting, we start learning our environment very early mm. and start adjusting our phenotype to accommodate to those varying environments. That can be a big advantage in some respects, but it can be a risk in others. And so what breast milk is doing is helping the baby develop for its environment. And if we get that right, then our immune system makes the correct decisions between food, good for us, and pathogens bad for us versus not allergens and react inappropriately to mm -hmm. allergens and we get food allergies we get asthma eczema mm -hmm. and the problems associated with that um, and our also our immune systems don't react as well and we've seen babies who get in essence the right bacteria they even respond better to a vaccination wow so yeah so they both ends of their immune system are developing but there are other things as well. So, so think about fuel. Mm -hmm. We need to fuel ourselves uh, all the time. It's, it's an amazing process. And the environment of organisms varies depending on the quality of the food supply, mm -hmm. fuel. So a very primitive aspect of biology is the response to the quality of the environment. And, and that early imprinting of the quality of the environment really has effects. So think of a simple organism. Think of a worm. Mm -hmm. If I put a worm in a very luxurious environment, lots of food, no predators, what happens to that worm? That worm grows big. It starts racing around its environment. It looks for other worms, <clears throat> makes more worms. It dominates its environment. That's the way biology works. Yeah. Take yeah. the same worm early in its life, put it in a hostile environment. Little food, lots of predators. What does that worm do? That worm stays small. It does not move. 
it conserves its resources, and if it gets any calories, it stores them. It's mm -hmm. making a species-saving decision. I've got to last long enough until times get better. So yeah. we can clearly sense quality of our environment and make systemic decisions appropriately to it. But it also means that we could make a mistake. That mm. Our signaling system could get disrupted. So what would happen if an organism, a worm, thought it was in a sparse, hostile environment, but it was actually in a luxurious one? What would it look like? A sedentary fat person. Mm. Right? Yeah. And that's what we have today. So the question is, breast milk that provides lots of fuel to the baby directly, but also providing fuel through this remarkable idea of the bacteria and the fuels it produces, are we in essence starving part of babies? And they're making an early decision. I'm in a hostile environment. I'm gonna starve my whole life. And so I better program my metabolic system for that kind of life. Mm. If that's true, then Kids are going to decide, I shouldn't play. I should sit. Adults, same decision. We basically, the problems that we're seeing in our, in essence, metabolic fuel priorities could be that we've misprogrammed early in life. And all of our evidence suggests that's part of the problem of getting the bacteria wrong. Mm. But again, the good news is you can restore the right bacteria. <laughs> That's great. So, uh, that, that's part of the excitement. So, well, let's let's dive into this. I know that within your um, the Health Institute, you have uh, and others at the institute have have spun out a number of companies that are dedicated to developing products and services to um, meet some of these nutritional gaps. Can you tell us a bit about um, some examples from those from those initiatives? Sure. So when we realized that we had, we had made this remarkable scientific, uh, we found something that wasn't there. Mm -hmm. We discovered that Bifidobacteria infantis should be in babies, but wasn't. And then we realized it would inadvertently be lost. And, and so we immediately thought, how can we get this back? Especially mm -hmm. our first goal was premature babies. Yeah. So we, in essence, the university and the faculty uh, who'd been involved in research founded a small company to bring that product so that all babies, uh, and now we realize all babies around the world need this right bacteria. So we together launched Evolve Biosystems, the company to bring uh, that, that product to, uh, to practice. We also realized that during the first months of life, you have this remarkable advantage. You have mother's milk with its complex carbohydrate and bifidobacteria infantis. That helps babies. What about the rest of it? How can we do that? In order yeah. to get the right biome, you need the right bacteria and the right, in essence, complex carbohydrate for those bacteria. Mm. That didn't look like it was possible to do. But then um, two brilliant scientists at, uh, at UC Davis David Mills, microbiologist, Carlita Labrilla, glycan chemist, they, in essence, mapped this complex relationship in milk and babies. And then the question was, could we do this for complex foods? 
and a broader range of bacteria? And it turns out, yes, we can. Wow. So we can literally, in essence, find the structure of complex carbohydrates and other food materials and map those to bacteria that, that are both going to consume them and will, will be protective of us. And so, again, it was an obvious opportunity we needed to bring to practice. And the university and, and those faculty launched the company uh, BCE Biosystems to bring that future of microbiome management uh, to, to all of us. And, uh, and so that's an example of, of bringing what we learned from mothers and babies into science and products for the rest of us. Now, I mean, I think this is the gold standard of what, at least for anyone interested in translational science, like that's my goal too, is like, can I find something really interesting in basic science and then translate it for the human good? I mean, that's just just so admirable and what, what an amazing discovery and amazing vision for what to do with that discovery. That's great. Well, it's not us, it's, uh, it's, it's lactation. Remember, mm -hmm. we set out to try and find the targets of efficacy. How do you intervene in someone's health through diet? The mm -hmm. targets of efficacy. But what Big Pharma has realized and, and everybody who's pursuing it, there's another problem. How do you make sure it's safe? Yeah. And evolution did the same thing. Milk is all a baby eats. So in essence, we know it's a wonderful, in essence, resource for understanding efficacy and it has the safety dossier for your dreams. It's those two together that make it so powerful as, uh, as a research and translation engine, exactly as you say. That's great. Well, I know, Bruce, beyond your work with the um, Foods for Health Institute, you're also engaged in this really um, fascinating up-and-coming global enterprise. Can you tell us a bit about that as well? Sure. So one of the things we learned from, from breast milk and lactation in general is, is the devil's in the details. Mm -hmm. Yes, you know, have to know the vitamins and minerals, but you have to know everything else. You have to know the, about the sh complex structure of the oligosaccharides, the sugar polymers. You have to know the sequence and structures of proteins. Everything in, in milk matters. And unfortunately, we haven't done that for food yet. We know what the vitamins and minerals are, mm -hmm. but we just approximate the proteins and the carbohydrates and the lipids. And, and so we began to build uh, what we refer to as an encyclopedia of the components of milk and, and beyond. At the same time, the Rockefeller Foundation had the same vision. They wanted to bring in a detailed compositional understanding of all foods from everywhere in the world. So all foods could compete, not just mm -hmm. on the calories they could provide, but all of the components. So we would build the tools so that everyone in the world could take the foods that grow around them and they've been using for centuries as, uh, as, as different cultures and ethnicities and peoples and understand them all and then bring them all into this massive global challenge we have today. How are we going to build the foods for the 21st century? Uh, it's a wonderful vision. Uh, it, it's a global enterprise. It's exciting. And, and I think it will be viewed by history as literally a turning point in the history of uh, food, agricultural, and health. So the <laughs> Rockefeller Foundation has started the periodic table of foods initiative, CTFI. Uh, it has a website. I encourage people to, uh, to go on and see what, what excitement this is, uh, this is causing. 
That's that's amazing. Well, this has been incredibly enlightening. And I just want to thank you for letting me pick your brain. It's all these questions I've had for years. And you're just like, yeah, this is what happens. And that's what happens. It just, it makes so much sense from an evolutionary perspective. And um, yeah. you know, I'm excited to see where this research leads in improving health and nutrition for, um, for premature infants and newborns and adults into the future as well. That's great, Bruce. Thank you. Not at all. You're quite welcome. Okay, great. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can check out all of our episodes at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. Do us a favor and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and please leave us a rating. You can also watch full videos of our episodes that have been recorded and posted on the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and we'll see you next time.